Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative types about how they do their thing and keep it going. Today my guest is an author and an actor, Malik Pancholi. He is best known for playing Alec Baldwin's assistant Jonathan on 30 Rock. And he's just come out with his first novel. It's for young readers and it's called The Best at It. And I listened to the audio novel, which was a real treat because Malik does such a good job of creating all the characters. So I recommend that uh, way to, to read it. Um, it's been out for a few months uh, and I'm, I was able to follow on Facebook all these different stops on the book tour and stuff. But I finally got to catch up with him via Skype to talk about the book. But before we get to that, I want to get a plug in for the virtual game nights we've been doing with our game, You Don't Know My Life. We've been doing one almost every night. And it's been a great way to help people stay connected with their friends and family. And it's one of the few things I've done on Zoom that doesn't feel like it it should be done another way, but we're just doing it this way. Like a Zoom happy hour. Yeah, okay. This really seems to work this way because there's a board that comes up on your screen and the technology and stuff. It, it feels like it is what it should be. So if you have an occasion you want to celebrate, if you want to just get together with your friends, or if you want to connect with your workplace people in a fun way, go to youdon'tknowmylife.com and you can see all the virtual game night info there. It's super fun. All right, that's enough plugs. Here is Malik Pancholi. All right, joining me now via Skype is Malik Pancholi, all the way from Brooklyn. He is an author. His new book is The Best at It. He's also an actor that you've seen on shows like 30 Rock and Weeds. And I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. Hi, Malik. Hi, it's so good to see you. You too. I mean, we're, we're seeing each other over Skype. I guess other people can't see I know, you. but we're both rocking our glasses. This may, may be the day I buzz my hair, I think. Nicely done. I cut my own last week. It's okay. It, it's, it went okay? Went okay. Yeah, surprisingly. I, I don't, we'll see how it grows in, but I, I understand the, uh, the desire to do that. Exactly. The, the I've had it with this, it's all coming off moment. So you're in Brooklyn. Um, with your husband, Ryan, where are you? Yeah, we, we were like very lucky. We have a house outside the city. So we, we escaped like six weeks ago. Um, but I have to say like, we, we went back for one day. My, my husband owns a catering company and they are like many, many companies like his have had to virtually shut down, but they're now, they're now delivering free meals to healthcare workers. Uh, and they've raised like almost $20,000 and they're, they've delivered over 1100 meals so far. So he went back for a day to like get everything kind of up and running. And, um, and I went back to our apartment and I have to say like, as a New Yorker, just our city's been hit so hard. Um, I'm grateful to have a place away from the city where we're not in the middle of that all, but I also feel like, I really feel it. Like I, like it was, it was, it was emotional being back for the day just like knowing how much the city's changed in a few weeks anyway just yeah no no it's important um i saw on facebook or instagram the catering the pictures of the food that that was being taken so that's awesome that he's doing yeah yeah Yeah. we it was what's really cool is like um a lot of the hospitals are sending pictures back um and it's just like really nice knowing that he i mean for him (laughs) i'm just so proud of him but yeah it's really cool yeah um, the last time I think I saw you face to face, we hung out in Brooklyn, walked around, right? And it was when I was working in New York. That was so long ago. It was so long ago, but I remember like our little Brooklyn hang, and it was like one of the few nice days we'd had in New York that 
winter or whenever it was. And uh, we had a meal and walked around. It was beautiful. That's my memory. Is that the same area you used to live in when you're in New York? Yeah, yeah, nice. downtown. Yeah, I've been there for years. Yeah, yeah, I love it. All right, so your book is called The Best Edit. It's a young adult novel, your first. I listened to the audio, which I'm really glad I did because you perform it so well. What was it like to record the audio and to get to start playing all those characters? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, thank you for listening to it. Uh, it was really fun. You know, it's funny, a, a couple people had been like, I don't know, do you really want to do that audio book? Because you literally are in a tiny little booth sitting um, at this tiny little desk. You have to do it. Book on it. What's that? You have to do it. You have I know. to. Well, and that was the thing is I was like, this, this story, as fictional as it is, it is um, also so much based on my own experiences and so many of those characters are based on people in my real life and so I was right. like I have to have to do it and I do voice like I do cartoons like right. I do. you're the perfect if you didn't write the book you would be the person I would come to to do it anyway <laughs> thanks and thanks. it would have driven yeah. you crazy to have somebody else doing it you know no I, so. I think so you know it's it's um it ended up being a lot of fun um it is challenging how like, long did it take you we did it, it was like over the course of three days. So I, I want to say it was like maybe two and a half, like six hour recording days or something like that. Yeah. Um, the book is, the book is, I think it's six hours complete like yeah. as, a, as a recording. So it takes about twice the amount of time to record it as it does to for the, for the actual um, recording. Did the, the emotions ever sneak up on you at any point? When you were um, recording it? They did. They did. Um, they did. You know, it's funny. I recorded it a while ago, so I'm trying to think of... Um, uh, the parts that were that were emotional. There's... Um, you know, I don't want to give, give stuff away, but there's a part where uh, Rahul, the lead character, stands up for himself towards the end of the book, and um, he kind of says some things that I didn't have the language to say when I was 12. Right. And didn't... Um, you know, didn't have the courage, I don't think, to even, even if I'd had the language, I don't know if I would have had the courage to say. And so that was, that was pretty, uh, that was pretty surprising for me that, that just saying that out, out loud, you know, writing it was emotional, but there's something about, of course, like giving language to words as an actor that I'm, you know, very conscious of, but there was something about saying those aloud in the booth that I remember I had to kind of, I had to pause. I I need a moment. I need a moment, moment. Yeah, yeah I, need a, I need a moment moment. Totally. So uh, tell the listeners just the basic plot of the book. How do you describe it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you said earlier it's a, it's a young adult novel. There's actually like this this um, slight classification thing. It's actually a middle grade novel, which just means it's for a slightly younger audience, you know? Right. The target is eight to 14, I guess, whereas young adult would be more high school. Sure. Having said that, um, readers, it seemed like, I I mean, you were telling me before we started that you got a little wee. Uh, I, got, I cried this morning listening to the ending, for sure, in my bed. Like, I feel like adults are responding to it. So I don't even, you know, these classifications, but but in terms of like the writing level and um, the target audience, it's, it's a middle grade novel. So it follows a uh, 12-year-old, Indian American Rahul Kapoor. Um, he's just beginning to realize that he might be gay. And um, in order to prove his self worth, he basically sets off on a mission to prove that he's the best at something, but he does not know uh, 
what that thing is going to be just yet. So a, a big part of the book is him trying to figure out what he's the best at, which is, you know, part of, I think, mirroring his journey of like, who am I? Right. And then when you kind of that thing, it's about, it's about proving that he can actually win at it, um, which is a lot about his proving his own self-worth. And by the end of the book, um, his biggest challenge is sort of finding out that uh, being the best at being himself is the real, this is a real journey that he's on. Um, and it's funny. I think it's really funny. His dad's in a band called Bollywood Supply. They sing Air Supply cover songs in Hindi. and uh, Which I really got, want to see that band. I would love that band. I know. Me too. Me too, right? Which That, that was kind of... My dad was, was pretty musical. Um, he never sang Air Supply songs, and certainly not in Hindi. But I, uh, as a kid in the 80s, loved Air Supply. So I was like, well, how can I bring that in? Um, his mom's got a group of uh, best friends that he calls the auntie squad, this, this gaggle of Indian aunties who seem to show up at the worst possible times. And, you know, and despite him being on this, this journey that is, um, of course, fraught with a lot of difficulty for him, I think of him as like a super optimistic kid, which also I think just brings a lot of like life and joy to the book in, in the face of some of the stuff he's that, that he's dealing with. Yeah. Um, when you start writing a book like this, what do they tell you in terms of parameters, in terms of subject matter, in terms of language? Because um, this is a, a, about a 12-year-old boy realizing that he's gay. And like that, that little logline would put some people off, you know? So what's that, what are those discussions like? Um, it's really interesting. So I actually feel like there's been a big push in um, in the literary world towards diversity. There's definitely like a far, far way to go. Um, but when I, when I pitched the book out, we went out to 10 different publishing houses and five of them bid on it and we had like a bidding war. And so I think- You were, were, you were part of a bidding war? Part of a bidding war. That's so exciting. So, what is that like? Are you getting updates every, every five minutes on the phone? You know, I have an amazing literary agent, this woman named Jess Regal at, at the Foundry, who she would, I think she was really strategic and really smart. And so, um, yeah, the whole process took like, you, from submission to like then editors reading the pitch, because I didn't have the whole book. I had maybe the first 10,000 words and then an outline of the rest of the book and the characters. And But anyway, so the whole process probably was like the course of a couple weeks. You know, she sent it out. By the end of the week, I think we had a couple offers in, and then we then I have my meetings with editors and sort of dis discuss with them like where they see the book going, and then everyone kind of comes back in with their financial offers. And so it was, it was so all of this is to say that I think there was a lot of interest in the story, but um, for that age range, like kids uh, of that age group, they don't go out and buy their own books, right? So. So there's still gatekeepers, there's, there's librarians, there's teachers, there's parents. Um, and so the only thing that parameters wise that I feel like I had to be a little careful about was how we discussed sexuality, to be honest. Right. Um, and I think, um, I'm actually like very, very, very happy with, with, with way, the way the book turned out. I think at like 12 uh, or 13, um, the way kids process sexuality is not often the way we see it in literature. Right. But I also think that when you write a book with a lead 12-year-old character, um, kids who are older than that aren't really 
a target audience. Right. In a way, because kids tend to read books with like kids they aspire to be. Right. So, so I understand having to be a little careful and sure. you know just say that sure. like it was mostly in the way he processed his attraction to other boys. Like, and, and I think had he been a straight character, it would have been the same thing that 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 the sexuality had to be handled in a delicate way. Right. Well, I remember mm-hmm. being like my first crushes where I wanted to be with them, but I didn't think it was physical. I just wanted to like be around them and stuff. And I think that's the way he sort of processes it. Like he wants to be like this boy that he has a crush on or it's not like I want to touch him necessarily. It's the way you write about it. And it's like, um, like that, that, what you just said, that, that piece of like, I want to be around them. I actually feel like for me, there was a narrative in my head that was like, maybe I just want to be them. Like maybe I just think they're really cool. And and I think, you know, they're, I, I feel like a lot of, gay men I know have expressed similar things to me about um, whether it's like denial of our actual feelings or if it's just like a confusion around processing them, that that it's that it's kind of confusing at that age. And right. that's in the book too. Yeah. Well, you look at them and you think they don't have the problems that I have. It would be so much better to be them. They're not dealing, yeah. you know, they're, they've got it all together. Um, where did the original idea of like, I'm going to write a book and I want to write this kind of book, where did that begin? Um, so I'm really lucky. I have two um, two really great friends who are in the literary world, and um, just by happenstance, honestly, like one of them was throwing a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton in like 2016, and she asked me to come introduce uh, Tim Kaine's wife, right? Um, who was at who was at the fundraising party, and so we had lunch, and she was like, you know, I didn't really even know a lot about her her. She, she, they basically have like a, a literary company that like finds writers and stories and puts them together. And she, she was like, have you ever thought about writing a book? Because, um, one of the things that I've been a big advocate for as an actor is more diversity in the media. And she was like, you know, that's a, that's, that's a major issue in literature and especially literature for young people. Um, and I was like, no, I haven't thought about writing a book because I feel like writing to me, like I have revered books my whole life. And to me, it's just like, how could anyone ever write a book unless you're like the most brilliant person in the world? Or, you know what I mean? It just felt so unattainable. Um, but she basically like put the idea into my head and she gave me like a number of um, titles of books that she thought might be interesting for me to read. And I, I, I basically went home and read a bunch of middle grade and young adult novels. And I left that thinking, I do feel like I have a story to tell here. And I do think I could maybe do it. <laughs> and, you know, which, which felt a little egotistical. But then I, then I tinkered around with ideas for like almost a year until my literary agent basically was like, if you ever want to sell this book, you need to just give me something. And, and then I did. And it sold. And then, and now here we are. And the book is doing really well, it just got the Stonewall honor uh, from the American Library Association, which is like re- really, really cool. And um, what exactly is that for? Is that is it a single winner, or is it part of? There are ten Stonewall winners, or something like that. Yeah, it's. Um, I think they. I think it's. So they have basically getting an honor as being like uh, a runner-up. Right. Um, I don't actually know how many there are, but this, but it's it's part of their youth award. So they have they cover everywhere from picture books to young adult novels. So um, I think there were maybe one or two or maybe three award winners and then a couple of honor nominees, like the runner-up nominees, and, and the book got, in, got the honor, which is... There you go. Um, 
So yeah, I think thanks. your book is one of the best things to come out of the Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign <laughs> you know i never thought about it that way but yeah. yes I guess so. <laughs> um did you always think of writing for young people or did you ever think i'm gonna write something um more adult um you know i think when the idea started to formulate it just felt like the right uh it felt like the right fit and also um i served on a commission at the white house under obama i, don't know I, I, I saw about. that i wrote that down i, I have questions um, yeah, so I, so I started on this commission, and while I was, the commission was on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. It was called the President's Advisory Commission on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And um, my big focus there was anti-bullying work. Um, and so, you know, as an actor, I've been so aware for myself of how, of how never seeing myself on television as a kid, how that impacted me. Right. And how important having our stories are in the world and then working in anti-bullying spaces that, that I kind of doubled down on that where right. like young people need to see their stories reflected back so when I wrote the book it felt it just felt like the obvious um, fit I have to say too that uh, full-on adult novels um, require, you know, a more, a, a different set of literary values, to be honest, you know, there's, there's the, the way you structure language and the words you use. And, and so for a first book, um, writing for a younger reading level also felt like a more, um, like a task that I, I could sort of, a, a better way to start the process of being a writer, you know? Right. Now, um, your, your lead character has some OCD tendencies that he kind of that come th thread throughout the book and, and emerge later as a bigger thing. Where did that idea come from to, um, to explore that? Yeah. Um, so I'm careful about the way I speak about it because I don't have, um, a diagnosed disorder, which is, which the OCD, the D and it's obsessive compulsive disorder. Right. And I think there's like very real parameters around what makes it a disorder. Sure. But, uh, but I'm definitely a bit of a checker, um, even as an right. adult. Make sure the lights are off. Make sure the heat is off. That has, you know. All of that, yeah, yeah. yeah. And as a kid, I would definitely have these flare-ups around it um, that, that at, at that age, for me, felt, felt pretty intense. But I, I hit it, like, really well. Right. So I can check all the locks on the doors of our house almost every night for a while, and no one would know because I'd wait until people were asleep or I'd, or I'd do it when no one was looking. Um, and so, so for me, there were like two things. One was, A, I hit it so well that we never had conversations about it. And then B, I just feel like there weren't a lot of conversations being had about that anyway. And so I wanted to model in the book, first of all, from a literary standpoint, I think it also mirrors Ruckel's stress. So it was a nice way to um to physicalize his internal emotions and, right. and, and put it into like an action that you can follow in the book um but also one of my favorite scenes in the book is a conversation between him and his dad um where his dad realizes that there's something going on and they try to have a, a conversation and neither of them really knows how to talk about it but the dad wants to help him and rahul knows that that something's not right and to me, I was that what what felt important to me about that conversation was that um, 
even if adults don't know how to talk to kids about mental health issues, like at least having the conversation is so important. Acknowledging so, it, that there's this thing. We may not know how to talk about it, but just just saying it, you know, in a way. Yeah. And I thought you did a really good job of the reader connects the dots between what he's struggling with in terms of his own identity and these and these behaviors and these stressors. They they feel connected in a way. Um that I thought you did really successfully. Um, and, you know, I think kids are, I think kids are complicated. And like, I, um, by the way, like all those things were true to me, you know, like I'm, I'm Indian American. I am gay. I had OCD tendencies when I was a kid and still do. And, and I think that sometimes we try to like ignore that, you know, now we call it intersectionality, that, that you are multiple identities. And, um, but it was important to me that, like I let him be complicated. I let him have all those things. And I just want to say one real quick thing is that one of my fears was that it would come across that he is OC, he has OCD behaviors because he's gay. And that's not the case because, because in the book it does definitely, he definitely, as the more stressed out he gets, the more the behaviors present themselves. And right. stress is a trigger for that. But it's not that he's gay. It's that the outside world makes it uncomfortable for him to him uh, to be gay to be so who he not- is he can't be yeah. who he is that's the message he's getting that's right yeah yeah um yeah and i thought those themes came through really really, really well i love the character of the grandfather um did you have a grandfather like that do you have a grandfather like that yeah all of my grandparents have passed away sadly but i but i um he's kind of based on a mix of my maternal grandfather and grandmother who um who both of them I loved like so much and they were major influences in my life and, and big mentors. And, um, you know, my grandmother was a little mischievous. And so I kind of gave that, that character quality to, to the grandfather. Um, neither of them were in a wheelchair. Uh, my grandmother was towards the very end when she got, she got really sick. But, um, uh, for some reason that just felt right for the character. And I wanted to make him, you know, a grandfather who's in a wheelchair, but who had like a ton of life. So, you know, in that first chapter, he's like popping wheelies on the driveway and challenging Rahul to a race around the neighborhood. And, um, but yeah, that, that friendship felt really special to me. And it, and it was one of my favorite, um, relationships to write in the book, to be honest. And Rahul has a best girlfriend, Chelsea, and their friendship really touched me. Like they were so thick as thieves, but then things get complicated. So did you have a best friend like that? I did. I did. Um, and, and she knows, she knows she's in the book. Uh, we were kind of inseparable throughout, throughout like middle school and most of high and high school, all of high school actually. Um, and, uh, yeah, and we're, we're still great friends. We're still great friends. She lives in London now and she's lived there for a long time. So, you know, we don't see each other all the time, but we're, we're definitely still, still great friends. And, um, so that character is definitely modeled after her. Um, what did she think when she read the book? Cause she, the character of Chelsea comes off as like the coolest. Like I think everyone wishes they had one of their, one of those in their life. Yeah, uh, I think she loved it. She, I think she really, really loved it. And um, and she has a she has a young um, uh, son, and she has told me that. I mean, he's now like interested in writing books, and he like sends me little book ideas, and it's really, really, really sweet. So, uh, yeah, I think it, I think that she was really, really touched to uh, to be a part of it. And by the way, I think so many of us did have, um, hopefully, I mean, I know I did, but that that idea that like that best friend that we all wish we had, 
thank God for those best friends, you know, like, I feel like they, they're the ones who get us through those middle school and, and high school years. Yeah, for sure. Did you grow up in Indiana? We did when I was really young. So I, I lived in Indiana from the ages of two to seven. Um, and then we lived in Tampa, Florida for, for middle school. Um, there was something about Indiana to me was a place, uh, that kind of embodied idyllic childhood. You know, we lived in a pretty small town. We never, like, I don't think we ever locked our front door. My sister and I would like ride bikes in the in the in the streets in our, of our neighborhood with other friends. And so I kind of wanted to to capture that kind of small town feeling for the right. book. Um, so that's why I said it there. I think I didn't sort of start to put it together that I was gay until later than middle school, way later. When did you sort of start to put it together for yourself? I mean, for me to actually be able to say it to myself was was really far later. And even as um, you know, even in college, I I think that I had convinced myself this is going to sound so self loathing and and nuts, but I'd kind of convinced myself that you know I knew I was attracted to guys, but that I in my head I was like, but I'm not gay. I'm just I'm different than other people, and I'm going to work this out. And I tried so hard to work it out. And so if I trace that backwards, like that story was super strong for me in high school and in, and in middle school. But I was aware that I was in the beginning, I was just being aware that I was, I felt different than the other boys. Um, and I knew that there was something, I don't even know what the, I guess just different is like, is like the easiest way for me to process it. Right. I started to notice that I was, I think I was aware of attractions in middle school and in high school. And, you know, it's so interesting too, because I feel like um, we're so afraid, I think, as a society to allow that to be true, that um, that if you have same-sex attractions, at, like in middle school or high school, um, it, you're confused. But if you're straight, it's celebrated, you know, like... Um, right. Like I was rewatching The Wonder Years recently, which is 12-year-old Kevin Arnold in seventh grade. And in episode one, he kisses Winnie Cooper. In episode two, he, he gets the book, Everything uh, You've Ever Wanted to Know About Sex, or I might be getting that title wrong, right. because he's like, and it's, and it's like, oh yeah, that's what being a young boy in America is. Yeah, go, figure it out, yeah, yeah. right? Um, the only reason that we don't know it you know, more clearly is because we're told that we must, there must be something wrong if we're having those feelings or no one else is having those feelings. Yeah. So, yeah. What has it been like? I know you did a lot of events. I saw, would follow you on Facebook and stuff. What was it like to interact with the young people that were reading your books? Oh my gosh. It was so great. I mean, so, so yeah, I went on a, I went on a pretty massive book tour and the book tour included, um, you know, the sort of traditional bookstore visits with, you know, friends and family and invited guests and all that. But it also, um, it also included going to visit a couple middle schools at every city that I went to. Um, the only thing that was like sad for me is that I went on book tour the day after my book came out. So none of the kids had actually gotten to read the book. Right. So I would do a presentation and chat with them about what it was about. Um, and I would sort of talk about my own life and, you know, I'll, I'll say this, like having played Baljeet on Phineas and Ferb, yeah. uh, 
I started recording that cartoon in 2006. So in my mind, I had, I didn't realize how popular it still was right. <laughs> from school students, but basically like I'd get up there and be like, you know, Hey guys, here's what I've done. I, I played ball on Phineas and Ferb. And suddenly I was like a rock star at these schools. And so I, I don't know if that's why, or if it's the actual subject matter of the book, the kids would really open up to me. You know, I, I would, you know, I'd say like in the book, Rahul gets bullied by another kid. Like have any of you experienced bullying and hands would go up and kids would talk to me about really surprising things. You know, like a kid who had alopecia would say like, I get bullied for like looking different. And so I, I really bonded with kids and it was really moving and in, inevitably like every school I went to, um, somebody who fit like one of the three things I was talking about, um, you know, sort of like from an issue standpoint, like being gay or being a person of color or having OCD or a mental health thing. Um, one kid would come up from like, who kind of covered one of those things and be like, thank you so much for writing this book. And so to me, I was like, gosh, my, my job is done. Like it, it, it right. felt, that's it what it's all about. Did yeah. you see any kids where you're like, oh, that's me. That's me. And when I was 12. Yeah, I, I actually went back to my middle school and high school in Tampa, Florida. Um, and I got to say, like, like being in those rooms, being in, in like an assembly hall with those kids and being like, wow, I, 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 I saw myself in so many of them. And when I got back to the place I was staying after that school visit, I actually literally sat down on the floor and just like, I just got to cry for a minute before like the bookstore event, because it was like really moving. Cause, cause, cause that's the thing is that everything I write about in that book, I didn't actually know how to process when I was, when I was 12. Right. You and get so to kind of go back as an adult and kind of give your character the things you wish you had had the courage to say or whatever. Like there's something really moving about reliving it that way yeah yeah and i and i i feel like you know this is the book i didn't have when right. i was 12 and so i think there was some like um catharsis maybe around that being like oh i'm putting this back into literally into the school that i went to where had this been in my library maybe my maybe these emo i would have understood myself better you know yeah i would have um, felt less alone i would have felt less alone yeah Were there, was there happened. any I'm not sure what that world is like now in terms of middle school publishing, but are there any schools that are like, no, we don't want anything to do with this gay thing? Or is it, are, is there sort of standards that people are pretty open or does it depend on the community? Um, I think it really depends on the community. I mean, I can share with you that I went to, um, I went to school, went to a school in Ohio. Uh, there was like 700 people, 700 kids in the assembly. It was like being at a rock concert. They were super enthusiastic. Um, you know, part of the way I talk about Rahul being gay in the book is by showing them that, that I am comfortable and like happy and things have worked out well for me. And so, you know, I show a picture and many authors do this, by the way, at school visits, pe pe most authors show some pictures of their family and their pets. Right. It's like part of the, the kind of format. Um, That's all right. You, I, I, I thought my dog was going to bark and, and make a cameo, but... Um, so I do the same thing. You know, I show, I show a picture. I actually show a picture of me and my husband. Yeah. I show a picture of my dog. When I showed the picture of me and my husband, 700 kids in this auditorium started clapping. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. Um, but that makes uh, me want to cry. Like something like that. It's, it's instant. 
Yeah, six the tears the way that that comes up in me. It's crazy when yeah, it's something certain. part of the mainstream culture or kids say something accepting of gay people. Whenever the Obamas would give a speech and they'd say, no matter where you're from or what you do or who you love, tears like that. Whenever yeah. it's visceral, yeah. it's crazy. But they it's they applauded for your uh, your handsome husband. And did you say any also can cook? So. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So there's add that scene with him. Yeah, <laughs> but but um, but at that same school, uh, there was later um, a, a bit of a conservative pushback from some parents who were really upset that I had come to the school. They were acute, you know. I didn't interact with any of them, but I saw some news articles. You know, these very conservative small town papers. I don't, I don't actually know like how big of an impact they had, but they, you know, saying that I was, you know, pushing a gay agenda on their kids and trying to get them, trying to sexualize their kids at an age before they should be talking about sex and kind of like all those sort of horrific things that, by the way, I think is why we cry when people yes. are actually accepting because we've heard right. them for so in our lives. And a number, you know, a number of these kids, I think probably because they were eighth graders, were on social media and they um, reached out to me and they're like, we're so sorry this is happening. We were so happy you were there. I had a dad reach out to me on Facebook and was like, since you came to the school, my son can't stop talking about you. We went to the bookstore and they sold out of all the signed copies of your book. Is there any way I could get a signed copy for him? And of course I was like, yes. <laughs> but... Um, I did see, and I have not followed up with the school directly, but I saw something online about how because of these conservative parents, they had to shift a policy in their school when they, where, where when they have a speaker, they have to notify the parents up front and the parents can pull their kids out of the assembly if they don't want it, if they don't want them to be there. So I just wanted, I guess this is to respond to your question of like, was there any pushback for sure? And, you know, I went to maybe I think 10 cities and maybe like 20, 25 schools, but I have a feeling there are like thousands of schools out there that are, that are not, um, that are not letting this kind of content be in front of their kids. And so I feel like, you know, that that's the work that we have to keep doing. Right. That's the reason these kids feel not okay about who they are. Wow. Yeah. What did it feel like to see that pushback? Um, it felt it felt really crappy. And, you know, if I'm totally honest, when I saw it, the first kind of emotional thing that came up for me was a little bit of shame. Right. I, I hate to make anyone upset about anything. It's my number. It's the, the invisible number one on my to-do list, right? Don't upset anyone. So yeah. the idea that I would go there and try to do this thing that I thought was put something nice into the world and, and people didn't like it. I, I would feel shame for sure. That would come up. I mean, I'd have to yeah. think my way through it, but that would absolutely come up. I don't have yeah. that. Fuck you. I'm a ball buster. And I don't, you know, I'm, that's not who I am. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, I think the first thing that happened to me was like that, in that, that visceral response of that internalized shame that so many have, have like, have, have over the years has just become part of who we are. And then I kind of thought through my talk, you know, and I was like, and what you said. Yeah. Yeah. Did I say anything inappropriate? Did I say anything that a straight author would not have maybe said to these kids about a kid having a crush on another kid in a book? Right. And I was like, I didn't. And then, and then I started to feel anger. And I also started to feel anger at like 
the lies in this article. You know, like, like there was something about how he tried to tell all the kids that the characters in Phineas and Ferb are gay, which I was like, hey, like, what? <laughs> no, yeah. I did it. And, and then I started to feel really sad because I was like, you know, some kid went home and told their mom or dad that I was there. And I don't know what that kid said. Maybe they were super excited I was there. Maybe they were upset I was there. Either way, the, the fact that their parents responded this way made me really sad for that kid, that this is, that's, that's how this kid's worldview is going to be shaped. Um, and it also made me really emotional about, you know, like that, the kid whose dad reached out to me and who was like, my kid can't stop thinking about what you said and want, wants your book so badly. And I was like, I don't, I don't know who that kid is. I don't know what I said that had such an impact on him, but I thought about me at 12 and if I'd had an author or a teacher, even I didn't have a single out teacher in my school when I was 12, but if I'd had an adult role model who'd said, everything is gonna be okay, like yeah. just how important that would have been for me. So um, so yeah, it brought up a lot, brought up well, a it, lot. It, it would, I, for me, if I were thinking we're in your shoes, it would upset me and I would feel that, that rush of that shame or whatever, but I would think through it and then I think, no, I need to do more of this. I need, this is why I need to be out there doing this. This is why it's important. Um, yeah. I think it, it would kind of fire me up in a way. Well, I think it's so easy now for, you know, you, there's this idea that things are, things are different. Right. And I think they are, they're so much better. And kids, I think are so much more aware of sexuality and like, you know, I think probably most kids out there, um, like they at least know the word gay and I've seen a gay yeah, character. Maybe it's so different it, than when I was a kid. So different, but it's still not like, it's still not, um, where it needs to be. Like it's, so I think that it's, I guess I just say that sometimes people are like, oh yeah, we don't need to talk about like the struggle of being gay so much because like we're past that. But I think it's really still a struggle, you know? I mean, it, I think there's a reason that places like the Trevor Project are still so important um, because I don't think it's still, as easy as it's gotten for some kids, I think it's still really hard for others. I think so too. And I think what your book really illustrates is the, it's his obstacle is himself. Because he's got a pretty ex accepting environment around him. He just, he's his own, he's standing in his own way. And it's understandable because of all the cues he's getting. But I think that's, that's part of, I think a lot of the negative things that we pick up on are subconscious. And they're already sort of part of us before we're even cognizant of of any kind of attraction or anything like that so in other words you can have the most uh, accepting family in the world and still deal with these issues in terms of your own identity i think yeah you know there there's there's a scene in the book where he overhears his parents talking in the kitchen after a dinner party he doesn't even really fully hear what they say because the dishwasher goes on but he hears them kind of being like um being like well do you think do you think he might be or so I can't remember the exact words right now, but basically like he gets the idea that, that they're slightly concerned about him right? and, and, and it's upsetting to him. And it's not because they're saying that he can't be gay or it's not that they're, that they're, that they're saying that there's a, a real problem with it. It's that it's that internalized feeling of like, um, I'm different. There's something wrong with me. Yeah. You know, I got a, I got an, I got a, um, like a DM, um, from, 
a mom the other day who she was like, my, my son is Indian American and his initials are actually RK and, uh, was Rahul Kapoor in the book. And she was like, he'd never seen, seen like a version of himself in a book. And she said in there, although he doesn't identify as gay, um, he certainly feels different all the time. And so for me, you know, I remember reading the book wonder. I don't know if you've read that book. Yeah. I've seen the movie, but I didn't read the book, but yeah. I got like bawling. It's such a, such a good book. It's such a good book. And I feel like I identify with that character who is not Indian American, who is not, who, we don't, he's, it's never referenced that he may or that he might even be gay. Like, I don't think that's like a thing at all. Um, he has a facial deformity, which, which I don't have, <laughs> but I related to his struggles of just wanting to fit in and feel different. And so I hope that, you know, kids who aren't gay, uh, relate to Rahul in that way. Yeah, no, and I think they will. Um, He also has, he doesn't embrace his cultural heritage as much as, uh, he's sort of like when the ants show up in Saris, he's like, oh, you know, like at at his school, like he, he sort of like wants to fit in in that way as well. Was that something you related to? Or did you um, sort of try to be more quote unquote American when you were growing up? Yeah, yeah, it's so funny because I feel like I, I mean I don't know if you've seen the, the news with um with like the Andrew Yang article where where he talked about you know very in my mind very offensively talked about how like you know with all the hate that's happening with Asian Americans right now around the coronavirus that Asian Americans just need to be more American <laughs> you know like whatever that means and I but I do think that when I was a kid. I didn't know any better that I did sort of think that, that, that like somehow being Indian American was not American, which is not at all true. Obviously. Right. That, but it, um, it may, is one other thing that made you feel separate from other people. Yeah. And, and I think the real, very real way that played out, that played out for me. And I think I've heard this from so many kids of, of other cultures is that we sort of had, you know, our friends at school that we did one thing with, and then we had like our parents uh, and family friends that we had Indian celebrations with. So like, you know, on the weekends, it might be like Indian New Year's. And that was like at a cultural festival at a hall with only Indian people. But then if you like went to like a game at school, it was just the kids at school. And you didn't, you, there was, you didn't really merge. Right. It wasn't integrated. It wasn't integrated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, the, that celebration where people throw color and, and paint and stuff on each other sounds really fun. Oh yes, it's so fun. It's so fun. I, you is know, it I'm messy? Especially... Is it messy? Do clothes get ruined? Is it Super one of the whole point? Yeah. yeah. It's like throw literally like color. It's, it's the Indian festival of Holi and you, you throw colored powders, um, liquid, like liquids, like literally like water balloons filled with like colored water. And you're literally drenched in every color of the rainbow by the time, <laughs> by the time it's over. And I was like, well, oh my gosh, of course, if Rahul's going to come out, he's got to do it dressed as a rainbow. <laughs> like, I love that, too, because the first mention of that tradition was pretty early in the book. So when it comes back at the end, you're like, oh, that thing, it's going to be, you know, you're visualizing it and it's really exciting. But have no. you taken part in many of those? No, sadly, because I feel like it's, um, um, well, growing up, you know, I think we had like one or two things in like a park. Um, it's in the spring, so so the weather is not always like conducive right, to, to like being drenched outside. Um, so sadly, no. I would love to go do it in India because I I've only seen pictures of how it's done in India, but apparently like streets all over the country are just full of people throwing colors at each yeah. other and and celebrating, and 
it seems pretty magical. Um, there's a section in the book where Rahul decides he's going to be an actor and he goes <laughs> to audition for a commercial. And I felt like the dialogue and the dynamic around diversity casting and he's not right for it. They want a white family and all of that stuff. I felt like it was so well observed and I'm sure you've lived it over and over again. But what was what was frustrating to me as I was sort of relating to Rahul is that he got to have all the mishigas around diversity, all the awkward conversations, all of the, this person stands up, this person, he got to have all that crap, but he still didn't even get to audition. So you get to have all of the, the conversations, but you don't get the end goal. You don't even get close to the end goal. So yeah. I, that's, then that felt, I, that felt like, oh, that's very much contemporary, um, Hollywood or, 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 the, or the business, or maybe it's getting better. But for a while, there was all this yakety. You got to be part of the yakety yak and all of that stuff, and and but then there was no payoff. Right. Um, so yeah, just talk about that sequence to me and and how you were able to put your own experiences into it. Yeah, well, so so one of the things Rahul decides to do in the book is to to see if he could if he could be an actor, and he's living in Indiana, so there's not a lot of professional opportunity you know he wants to be a tv star and and the only thing is like a local bank commercial right <laughs> and so he goes to the bank for the for the audition and then when he gets there um they're basically like listen we're casting a family and the parents are white and so you know we don't want to waste your time um and it kind of ends with with one of the people one of the people from the bank being like thank you for that audition it was great and he's and his best friend Chelsea's like what do you mean he didn't even get to do anything and um and it's and you know there's there's a moment in that scene where Rahul says wait what 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 can I play their adopted son right and for me that is like as ridiculous as that sound sounds that is um that is something I've literally thought about of like, course. Yeah, like you, you get a script and they're like, hey, they want you to, to audition for like, you know, someone who works at the store. And you're like, yeah, but the great part is this, is the lead dude, but he has parents who are obviously white, so I can't be it. And and, and literally thinking, well, what, well, how could I get, how could I get my foot in the door for this? Could they maybe reconceive the part as this? Um, and so that, that's like, that's very real for me and so that idea like what you said that's so frustrating is like you get to have the conversation but you don't actually even get to do the audition is right that's for so much of um of my career and you know it's so much enter it's so much energy it's so much bandwidth goes to this thing around there but the payoff it doesn't lead to the payoff it doesn't and you know i think like we've come so far with that but diversity casting still um you know, often if you have a group of six friends on a show, you'll have maybe one or two people of color. Yeah. And and the thing is, like, like they're sort of, they sort of have to represent them like all minorities. And um, our experiences, like, you know, even like I'm South Asian, so I'm Asian American. Well, Asian American, you could be from China, Korea, Asia, you know, uh, Southeast Asia. You could be from India. You could be from Bangladesh. You could, there's so many different experiences to be represented. But we're like, oh, but but I think the way TV casting works now is, you know, the the default, the 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 number of characters that can look the same is Caucasian, and then you know, and then you know, thank God there's one or two characters that are, that look different, but, um, but they're not representing the whole breadth of experience. Right. Yeah. 
And I'm sure there's yeah. lots of things where they're like, well, we already have an Indian guy in the cast. So, you know, like, you only have one of certain, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. a Whitman sampler um, <laughs> thing right. of that, thing of that. What, in terms of, what are your pet peeves in terms of that world? It's like, if I read one more blank, or if I hear one more person say blank, what are you like, I've had it? You, in the TV world? Yeah, I guess. Or in that, yeah. in the yeah. sort of casting you world. Know, it's so interesting. I had a friend say to me, um about theater he was like yeah i don't really go see plays if it's if if there's not at least one person of color in the cast and and i think one of my one of one of my own challenges is so many of the shows that i like are set at a time when there's very few people of color right like downton abbey if that if you're a fan of downton abbey yeah, Down Abbey, Mrs. Maisel, um, I'm trying to think, Mad Men, you know, right. like, um, it's all these shows that I really love, and I'm like, well, I would love to be on that show, but how would it ever make sense for me to be in it? So I think, like, I, I guess my pet peeve is just more like, like, why aren't we, why don't we have more stories that represent um, a broader range of experiences? Because it's not that those shows are bad, they're good. But, but we need to have shows that are set in a time where we can be more representative of all these different cultures. And, you know, there's, there's so many stories I want to tell. Like, um, we're, we're working on adapting my book for television. That would be amazing. Family. Yeah, I know. I'm, like, so excited about it. And the idea of having an Indian-American family, you know, much like the Wonder Years, being an American family with, with a 12-year-old kid who's just figuring himself out, it feels really exciting to me. Yeah. Were your parents born in the United States? Or? Um, no, my parents were both born in India. They came here um, separately, actually. They both they met here. Uh, but they came here, like, 1968, 1969, right around then. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did you and, go back to um, – did you? Did they ever take you back to India to, to... – uh, Yeah, we, we went, like, a fair amount when I was really young because they both still had family there and um, – you know, sometimes we'd go for an extended period of time. Like we, they'd pull us out of school for a few weeks and we'd go spend like three or four weeks there. And was it amazing? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was also hard as a kid because, because we would often go, um, because of school, we'd often go like in the, in the summer, which is, it's just so hot. Right. <laughs> so hot. Um, and then as an adult, I went a couple of years ago, my husband and I actually got engaged there, uh, in 2013. Who proposed? Uh, you know, I have to be honest, we had already been together for nine years at that point. So right. we, <laughs> so we basically, we, we planned this trip to India and we, we decided that we would, we, we got rings in New York. Okay. And then we decided that we would go to the, the Taj Mahal and, um, propose to each other. But then when we were at our hotel at, at near the, near the Taj, um, our tour guide like called up to our room and was like, um, he was like, just so you know, don't bring anything valuable on our tour because they, they go through the bags and you just want to be careful with all your stuff. So we're like, shoot, maybe we shouldn't take these rings that we're not going to wear until after we've like proposed to each other. Right. So we left them at the hotel and then we go to the Taj Mahal and this was so crazy. We, so our tour guide gives us this whole tour. And then at the end of it, he's like, um, he's like, listen, I'm going to give you guys 20 minutes just to walk around, take some pictures. And then he looks right at both of us and he's like, 
or if you have any promises you need to make to each other, now would be the time to do it. And it's like, so it was so nuts. We were like, what is going on? When has um, a tour guide ever said that to anyone ever? Is that just something I, that happens well, at the Taj Mahal? Like, I know. Well, so like, you know, we're two men in India, and by the way, like on the ground in India are like, people could not have been more accepting and more loving. And, um, but it was right after India had reinstated this, this, this rule called section 377, which basically criminalized, um, being gay. Like literally they had, they had reinstated it. And then we took this trip. And so I kind of had that in the back of my head, but we had this, yeah, this tour guide literally was like, so if you want to, if you need to make any promises to each other, now would be the time to do it. We're like, okay. And so, and then we like, kind of, so you got to do it. What's that? So you have to, like he told you. Yeah, so we did it, and then and then back at our hotel that night, we exchanged um, we exchanged rings, and so yeah, so we we both obviously love India a lot. I've always wanted to go there. That sounds kind of amazing. Now, were you a mathlete like your character in the book? I was, I was, yeah, I was totally did like did um did math competitions, um, did pretty well at it. I have to say, yeah. <laughs> I never we didn't have that in my school, but I was in speech and drama, and that felt like a similar dynamic, kind of nerdy, but also going on trips out of town with your team and having fun and stuff. In the book, he sort of resists being a mathlete because it's thought of as nerdy or whatever. Were you always like, bring it on. This is this is what I'm good at. I'm into it. Um, I think I had a little bit of both, honestly. Um, I think I had a little bit of, um, like a little bit of shame around it being a nerdy pursuit. Right. Uh, as well as this idea that it felt stereotypical. I'm so sorry, there's my dog again. That's I okay. I thought yeah. it was gonna be my dog. I was ready to apologize for my dog. It's all right. Yeah. Um, yeah, they got a little bit of both, but I also like really enjoyed it. And I had great friends on it. And um, and uh, and it was fun to go. And you have your special trip. pencils? You have your special mathlete pencils? I don't remember if I had like special pencils or not, but I will tell you that um, this is kind of a long story. I'll try to make it, I'll try to make it. That's all right. Not long. But we had this amazing math teacher when I was in middle school and our school did not have a school lunch program. And so he basically had the math club create a school lunch program. This is terrible. We would literally get like fast food <laughs> and bring it into school and then sell it to students. And we raised money with that. And, um, I'm sure our parents had to pay into this as well because I can't imagine we raised enough money. But one of the things he would do with that money is he would arrange um, an international trip. And so we went to Russia, like in the late 80s, <laughs> to compete uh, on a, to have a math competition with Russian students. But this was like... That's unbelievable. I know, nuts. And, and I'm still like, like, um, my math teacher, I'm still in touch with him. I just, saw, I saw him when I went back to Florida recently and, um, he's such an amazing, amazing man. Um, but this was like Reagan Gorbachev. So we get to Russia. First of all, I just want to say like, this is how, this is, this is like the part of myself that is in this character in the book. We're on a plane to Russia, like a place that people did not go to visit in the eighties. And I have a diary that I, that my sister somehow had. And she showed it to me recently where I'm literally like, there are five of us on this plane. Only four of us can be on the team. <laughs> like who's going to get cut? Like I was so you know, worried about this competition and winning and it meant so much to me. And, and then when we got to Russia, 
because of the political situation, they decided that we wouldn't have a math competition, that we would just literally take math tests <laughs> and like, and then hang out with these Russian students and get to know each other, which was actually like very, very beautiful. But when I initially pitched the book, I pitched um, Rahul sort of dealing with the fact that he can't win was that the competition gets taken away from him, much in the way that it got taken away from me um, in Russia. But, but every editor I met with was like, you, you can't write a book about a kid who goes to Russia. Like, no kid is going to relate right. <laughs> to go on a school trip to Russia. So, so that all... Maybe that there's all, a like, sequel. Have you thought about a sequel? Um, I've definitely thought about another book. I'm actually right. like in the midst of um, working, out through, working through some ideas with my editor. I, I really... Um, I loved writing. I found it super rewarding. Um, I like this space. Like I, I like writing for young people and, um, yeah, I don't know about the sequel, but, but we are actively, um, it's been optioned by a major studio. We just, we just haven't announced it yet. So there's I'm being coy, but we're, we're hoping to adapt it for television. And, and I think that'd be like an amazing space to like, to continue going on journeys with Rahul. I would love that. Um, did you love your cover? The cover's really cute. I like it. Thanks. I did. I did. I did. We, uh, my, my publisher found this artist who she's, um, of Indian descent and living in Finland and we never met or spoke. She read the book and came up with like her own interpretation of it. And then we went back and forth on a few sort of like minor details sure. and color palettes and stuff like that. But I just feel like she nailed it. I, I, I was, I was, I was pretty moved when I, when I saw the first draft of it even. Right. Um, talk to me about this Obama um, commission you were on. You were an appointee. Um, you, you mentioned it a little bit earlier. Did you interact with him? You know, I did not get to interact with him, uh, um, sadly. We did interact with Biden a few right. times. And, um, and I, will, I will just say um, to anyone who's listening out there, uh, I know, like, I feel like our part, the Democratic Party, not our, man, I don't know who all your viewers are, but um, uh, has been so fractured around the choices. But um, I 100% believe that Biden is an amazing human being and wants what's best for this country. And I'm, I'm super thrilled that, 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 he's, that he's back, back that he's back. Yeah. I think, I think, um, I was, my time at the white house, you know, people are so down on politicians and so down on government. Every single person I met there seemed to really want to make good happen in the world. Um, Biden included, you know, they, they, everything was about how do we improve people's lives. Um, and the commission that I was on at the white house, um, we had, we had basically one overarching task, which was to increase um, engagement with the community and the government. So, um, and, and our we were our focus was on the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. So our job was to to go out to the community, make sure that they were aware of federal programs that they could have access to, and then find out from the community what they needed from the government that wasn't happening, and try to work on those things from the government. And so, you know, the anti-bullying work that I started there came out of finding out from organizations on the ground that there was a lot of bullying happening to Asian American kids, but there wasn't a lot of reporting to the federal government. So when we first started this campaign called Act to Change, 
um, the idea was to increase reporting to the federal government so that we could respond to it. Then in 2017, when the White House turned over and suddenly it was like the White House was basically saying, if you're Muslim and you tell us, we'll deport you. <laughs> we couldn't really go to a South Asian kid and say, hey, if you're being bullied at school, report to the government. Right. So we so we moved the campaign outside of the White House and we're now a nonprofit um, doing that work on the ground. I, I feel like I kind of like ran with that question and went to so many different no, places. No, it's so good. I wanted to ask you about that. I, I saw that on your bio. So it's it's something that still exists today. But because of the change in administrations, you literally had to take it out of the White House and, and make it an independent thing. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So now we're like a nonprofit. We first, so Act of Change was, was this anti-bullying campaign that we started at the White House. We moved it outside. At first, it was like me and three former White House staff people kind of like trying to run a nonprofit. But we're now like a working board of 12. We're, we're beginning an advisory board. We're... Um, we're doing a lot in response to all the all the racism and bullying that's come up around the coronavirus, and um, and I, you know, it's 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 challenging work in the the fact that there's a need for it makes me really sad, right? But but it's also very rewarding in the fact that we're able to make some real change happen. Yeah, it's important. Um, the bully in your book, you do a good job of sort of showing the other side of like what he's dealing with at home or whatever. You get the hints that like his life's no picnic and he's taking the crap he gets at home and putting it on other people. Like that comes through, I think. Uh, was that important to you? Yeah. I mean, I think one of, one of the things that, um, that I learned around the anti-bullying work is that um, there's a, there's a real movement to not call kids who bully bullies. Mm-hmm. And it is a, that, a lot of times kids bully for a very specific reason. Like they're either taught to bully, um, they're having to fight for their own self-worth, um, they're not being told the right things at home, uh, whatever those are, and the idea that they can change. Right. And so we don't want to label them in the way that we wouldn't want to, you know, label someone who we, who we, who we like with something negative either. So, um, so yeah, I wanted I wanted to put that out in the book, but but I will also say that I, I wanted to also be really careful to 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 not be you know there are some like bad people out there. Yeah, you don't you don't totally <laughs> yeah. let him off the hook. You don't yeah. you don't sort of let him off the hook, and you feel like there's a moment where he could kind of like just own a little bit of his crap and 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 not be that way, but he he can't do it, and you're like nope. He's still going to be that jerk. He's still kind of a jerk. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I, I, it's, I can see that dynamic. Um, a lot of you, a lot of people first came to know you from 30 Rock, um, where you played Jonathan, uh, Alec Baldwin's assistant. Uh, what's your favorite memory of, of working on 30 Rock? Oh, my gosh. It's so hard to pick one. We, you know, we did that show for seven years. Um, I remember filming the pilot i was actually filming another pilot in los angeles um and i had a, I had an amazing agent at the time who was like hey they want they want you to come do this tina fey thing i, I had auditioned for it's the it was the untitled tina fey pilot i'd auditioned for it like six months prior to that or something like that but tina was pregnant at the time and so the whole thing got put on hold and then suddenly i'm like in the middle of filming another pilot in la and and they're basically they want you to come to new york for one day to film this role with zero lines um because i had zero lines in the pilot and 
somehow my agent got me like a day off from the, the one in LA. I flew home for literally 24 hours and then flew back to LA. And I remember being like, I don't know, like I have no lines, like why would I fly to New York for this? Um, so that's like one memory for me is just like, thank God I did it. And then this, that very, that day on the, on the pilot, it was actually, it was actually the very last day of filming. And I remember at the end of it, Tina Fey, like, got up on a chair and basically like thanked everybody. And she was like, let's just hope we all run for seven years and make a lot of money or something, you know, something like funny, but also, right. but also heartfelt, like classic Tina Fey. Um, and then it ran for seven years. That's so. what happened. Was your character always going to be in it, in it ongoing? Or was it one of those things where, Oh, like let's bring him back. Yeah. I, um, I don't, hundred percent no for sure i feel like when i auditioned for it it was like, like one of those you know possible recurring we'll, right. we'll see what happens um i do remember talking to the casting director kind of after it all got got picked up and she was like she was like yeah that tina fey loves you she, she wants to have you back and i was like okay great like let me know um i will say i think T tina is so smart uh like obviously one of the best writers in in any business but certainly in, in the business of television um I do feel like one of her great strengths is seeing like something in a, in a person, an actor and just like calling it out. And that very first day on set, I remember when I met Alec for the first time, like I was partly terrified and I was probably like, Oh my God, it's, it's Alec Baldwin. Like partly like completely in love in like an instant. And I feel like Tina, Tina was definitely there when I first met him. And I feel like she saw that. And I've never actually asked her about this, but I have a feeling that in that moment she was like, oh, well, that's who this character is. He's going to be slightly terrified of and slightly in love with, with his boss, and that's something I can work with. And that's kind of, I think, what we continue to capitalize on with that character over, over seven seasons. Yeah, and it was so fun to watch. Um, Alec Baldwin was so funny in that role. Did you ever almost crack up? I mean, everyone's yes. professionals, but yeah. he was funny in a, such a unique way that I feel like it would be hard to sometimes play scenes with him as Jack they, Donahue. There were so many times where as soon as the director would call cut, everybody on set would start, would start busting up because everyone had been holding it in the entire, the entire take. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he was, he was brilliant. I also, um, I remember Jane Krakowski saying to me at, at one point, like she, she was like, um, I don't know if people know just, just, just what it is that Alec is doing because it seems to come so natural for him, you know, but, but, um, he, I mean, he had such complicated stuff on that show, like that that scene where he was, you know, trying to make a commercial for for GE, and he didn't know what to do with his hands, and like just like all the physical comedy, yeah. just the amount of language he had. Yeah, um, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Now, you were recently on Broadway, The Great White Way. The Great White Way. Yeah. I wish I could yeah. could have seen the show. What it was called Grand Horizons. Or... Grand Horizons. Yeah. yeah. What kind of show was it? What was it about? Uh, it, it was, it was a, it's a comedy, um, about by an amazing writer named Bess Wall, who I actually went to, to drama school with. And this is the first time we've worked together professionally. Um, and by the way, I just want to say that we, we got, we had a limited run, but we got it all in. Yeah. But you got it in right thing. under the, right under the wire, right? No. And it, and it just makes me so sad for, you know, all the shows that had to close down. I think about people, you know, just what it means to be in a Broadway show. Um, this was my, only my second Broadway show, but I like, there's so many people out there who were supposed to make their debuts and, um, just all that theater. Like we, we have no idea what it's going to look like going forward. And, um, and I'm just, I'm grateful to have gotten to do that, uh, before it all changed. But, 
Um, Grand Horizons, it's about uh, um, a couple verging, like they're, they're, they're nearing 80 and they've been married for 50 years and they move into an assisted or to an independent living facility. And something about moving into that independent living facility makes them question their whole relationship. They decide to get a divorce and their two adult sons come home to stop them. Um, and Michael Yuri played one of their adult sons. And, uh, uh, I, I had a pretty, I had a, a pretty small part in it, but I, I basically, Michael brings me home one night. Um, <laughs> and it's sort of a love scene slash sex scene gone very wrong in an independent living facility while, while his 80 year old parents are uh, <laughs> asleep upstairs. But it but, you know, it's a really cool part because, um, myself and Priscilla Lopez, like Broadway legend Priscilla Lopez from Chorus Line, we both had these one great scene parts where we come in and we're like these voices outside of the family that disrupt things and make them rethink things and offer a new perspective. Um, and so it was, it was just like, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. How physical did it get? Pretty physical. There, there might've been some items of clothing taken off. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Was some, that fun? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, a little scary at first, but also, also really freeing to be in your underwear on stage. Good for you. <laughs> what was it like, like your daily routine? I'm just going to go do my Broadway show now. I'm going to get on the train or whatever it is. Like, like, this is my time when I warm up. It's like that. I think that's part of the dream, right? Is that ritual aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so interesting being in like quarantine now. Um, with my husband where we're literally home together all day long and it's going great. I mean, we're, we actually, we, not only do we love each other, but we actually really like each other. So it's going great. But you know, for, from November, uh, or I guess we, we started previous in December from December to, uh, March, basically I was working every night of the week and he was working during the days. And so we like rarely even saw each other. Right. But, to, but anyway, it's just so you went like from that. one extreme to another, one extreme to another. But I, but I think when you're, you know, I think when you're in a Broadway play or in any play, um, you're just on a different schedule than the rest of the world, you know? So it's like 5 PM rolls around and it's like time to think about going to the theater. And then you get to your, the theater around seven 30 or a little bit earlier, you do your show at eight, you're done around, you know, 10 30 or 11, you know, because we were a limited run, it seemed like I knew someone there every night. So you go out with a few people and then get home and, you know, rinse and repeat, um, and then do all the things that, you know, normal people do during the day while you're working at, at night. But it is, it is great. And I think, you know, what's, what's nice about getting to act every night is that you're just sort of really limber as an actor. Like you come off of it being, being pretty sharp and loose and, um, you know, just the, the daily aspect of like, being a little warmed up and being in front of a thousand people or whatever it is. It's, it's, yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to something you mentioned before and just follow in a, a little bit more. So you worked, you met with Biden a number of times. Um, I always feel like interpersonally, he's one of those people that can make you feel like he gets you. He cares. Like, like what was your, what was your take on him as just a person? What was it like to be around him? Yeah, I mean, I I I found him extremely um, extremely sincere, 
um, really loving. Um, you know, I, I also just got to be in small rooms where he spoke a fair amount. Mm -hmm. He's, uh, he can speak so off the cuff because he's been at this for so long. Right. <laughs> like he's, he's, he knows world politics because he's lived through so many different, uh, administrations and years of, of, of serving this country. Um, so when he speaks about things passionately, he, I, I think it feels very real. It feels really genuine. Um, I heard him speak at the UN, um, for an LGBTQ, conference of sorts that I, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it now. And the what the way he spoke about gay rights and his own conversations with Obama as they were moving towards uh passing federal same sex marriage. Right. Well he led that publicly. He kind of came out on Meet the Press and said that thing. Yeah. yeah. And and you know, and him talking about the American people being ready before the systems of government being ready. Um, it's because he was there. <laughs> like, like it's because he knows, he knows both the people on the ground and the systems of government and knew how to do the right thing at the right time. So, um, yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Good. Well, it's fun to hear that. Well, this has been delightful to talk to you. Uh, how can people learn more about your book? Where can they get it? How can they get it? Um, yeah. I also um, recommend the I audio, which is terrific. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I have a website, malikpancholi.com, which has links to, um, uh, basically, basically it links to the HarperCollins site, but from there you can actually, this is, this is so great. You can actually from the HarperCollins site, choose to either order it from HarperCollins or from Amazon, but then you can also choose, um, an independent bookstore in your area, like through, um, um, uh, books a million or indie bound. So, uh, ideally if you want to buy the book, it'd be great if you could support an indie independent bookstore. They're certainly suffering right now and have a hard time anyway. So, um, but most of them I think are still doing online service. So that's a great way to order it. Uh, you can also connect with me on social media, uh, everywhere. I'm just Malik Pancholi. So at Malik Pancholi at Twitter, at Malik Pancholi at Instagram. And, um, yeah, I love that, it. Have you had fun signing the books? Do you write something cute in them or do you have a, a, your signature thing that you write? <laughs> um, I have had fun signing them. You know, what's so funny is my sign my own signature is really, really messy. And so before I went on book tour, I was like, I'm going to like work on it and make it more legible so that kids can walk away with a great signature. And I, I remember meeting an, an author um, at a HarperCollins party and he was like, don't do that. I was like, what do you mean? He's, he's like, don't waste your time making it better. By the end of book tour, it's just going to be a line anyway. And I have to say that Basically, I went from having like many vowels in my very long name to about like two letters in a line. It's like M line, P line. But, yeah. <laughs> but it is really fun to sign. Um, there's a little trophy on the cover page. I'm looking at it on the cover page. Okay. Uh, like, yeah. Uh, I forget what you call that page, actually. But, but uh, Right. Yeah. Where your name is. Yeah. Uh, and so often when I sign it, I'll put a little, I'll put a little like, this one's for you. If it's for a young person, like circle the trophy and, and sign it. And, um, but it is nice to have, uh, it's always nice to be able to write something personal. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's fun to do those. Yeah. Can I tell you a thrill that you have in your future? What's that? Perhaps one day you will need copies of your book. So you will buy them used to get them cheap just because you want to give them away or whatever. You, you know, this is years down the line. Then you will find a book that you would sign to somebody <laughs> that you bought back <laughs> used 
Or maybe you gave it away to somebody. Maybe you gave it to Neil Patrick Harris and his husband. <laughs> and maybe they ended up giving it away to some thrift store. Maybe you ended up buying it back for a penny. But you know what? Not a true story. Kind of, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, I, I, like because the um, yeah you'll buy you'll you want to have some to give away or whatever if I'm developing something whatever, um, and you'll buy them used. But sometimes they're already signed to people that you sign them to. But, we did not even talk about this, but but um, do you do you have multiple books out now? I have two: Misadventure in the Screening, uh, Misadventure in the Two and Three, and Screening Party. Screening Party, right? Yeah, yeah. Misadventures in the Two and Three. I read when I first moved to LA in like 1996, I, I like moved to LA right out of college. And I remember that book being so amazing. And that's Aww. young adult, right? No, it just, it's just immature. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't pitched as, as anything young adult. They were, they were twenties. They were in their twenties, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, what I was going to say was like, I felt very young at the time. I guess yeah. I was in my twenties. And it, it just felt like, it was like, oh my gosh, this is such a perfect book for me as I start off my LA life. Right. So just, just so you know, like however many years ago that was now, I, um, that would have been like 98, 99. That's like the lasting impact that, um, that books have. And like, I loved that book. I loved that book so much. I didn't much. know. Oh, thank you. I did not know you lived in LA for a while. Yeah. Yeah. What was I, your experience like out here? Uh, it was it was great. I mean, it was. I lived out there for four years, right out of college. It was. Um, it was like I look back on it. It was pretty magical. Like I had a roommate from college, and we did crazy things, like you know, like snuck into movie premieres and kind of a lot of the stuff. Yeah, the very misadventure in the two and three, where you're kind of on the fringe of show business. You're never yeah, on yeah, the list, fine. right? And, and everything felt exciting, you know, getting an audition felt exciting. Yeah. It was also really challenging, you know, like I, like there was very little work for actors of color. Um, you know, that was when I did uh, some pretty offensive things like playing the foreign exchange student with like an over the top accent. And, uh, but it was also great. Like I, I guest starred on Tracy Ullman had a show called Tracy takes on that I did mm -hmm. a couple episodes of and, um, it was really fun, and a lot of the friends that I first became friends with out then, out there then, are still friends of mine now. It was it was like that magical time when you're right out of college. You're like, anything could happen. Yeah, it's, the way I pitch the book is it's about the last time in your life when it's still fun to be a failure. Um, <laughs> that's exactly right. That's yeah. probably related to it so much. Oh, that's cool. That's cool to hear. Um, what were some of the things when you, what were some of the parts that like the exchange student and stuff, how would you process that? Like, well, somebody's got to do this part. Maybe I can bring something else to it. Like, how do you approach those things when you're like, do I want to do this? Can I bring something different to it? I also need the money. Like, that's a lot. I mean, sadly, I feel like the conversation around like, can I bring something different to this was, um, like, it, like for those first jobs, it was so much about just getting my foot in the door and yeah. so much about, um, you know, the thing that every actor wants, like any tape of me being on a yes. TV show. Yeah, exactly. A gig's a gig. Yeah. Yeah. Gig. But, um, and then that, then that started to evolve. Like, Oh, could I, could I get in there and make some changes or at least bring some integrity to the role? And now I'm at a place where like, if I don't have, if I can't have the conversation before, cause by the way, there's still offensive parts out there. I mean, I did, I did a, a pilot a couple of years ago that didn't, that didn't go. And, um, 
but we shot the pilot and I got the offer for it. And I was like, you know, I don't like, um, my character's written Indian American. And there was like this big joke exchange around like a Ganesh statue in his house. And, and I was like, I just don't like, I don't know where this is going. And like, it's slightly offensive as is, but is this going to be like the way this character evolves over the series? And so I literally was like, I need to have a conversation with like the writer or producer before, before I can like accept this. Um, and we had the conversation and he was like, Oh, he was like, gosh, I just thought that was funny. But now I see, I see what you mean. That is pretty offensive. And they wrote it out. You know, they, they like took it out of the script. And, right. and so like, so, so, but I couldn't have done that at no. 21. That wasn't the conversation. Right. Yeah. So, so that's great that, you, that, that you're able to do that more now. Um, even though we have a long way to go. Um, final question. Yes. What do you think you would have made of a book like yours when you were 12? Oh my gosh. I think. Would it have kind of freaked you out a little bit? Um, I think I probably would have, like I did the immediate picture that came to my mind when you asked me that question was like me sitting under like, the cover of my bed with a flashlight reading it like voraciously <laughs> like i think that and I, I hope that doesn't sound like too self-congratulatory but no just because you're think, starved I'm, for something that speaks to you yeah i had um i, I got a, a message from a, a mom and this is by the way like one of the most heartwarming parts about this whole process is getting messages from from parents and, and kids who read the book but um this mom who's whose son, she's like, my son does not read books, but we came to your book event in Denver. And she was like, he basically stayed up to like three in the morning reading the book and wanted to send you a video that he sent me that was like so sweet. And, um, and I feel like I probably would have been a little bit like that kid. Like, I think I'd have been like, I need this so bad because I loved reading books as a kid. Right. And I would often like stay up late reading books. And I think a book like this would have, um, would have been so important to me. I also do hear you. Like, I don't know. It might've freaked me out a little bit. Like there's something in the recognition that I think sometimes can be scary too. But, um, but I think more than that, I think I would have been, I think, I think seeing myself in a book would have been just kind of like, I can't even describe it. I think it would have just been so emotional. Yeah. Amazing. Well, congratulations. I'm so glad we finally got to do this. And um, it's good to see your face and uh, the haircut you did yourself. Uh, All right. Right. It's good. Tell Ryan I said hello. And I hope we get to cross paths in person at some point. And I hope your TV show happens. That would be amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Even if it's all on Zoom. Thanks again to Malik Pancholi. Check out his book, The Best At It. It's a treat. Okay. So this happened. Well, not much really happened. Um, I did see Circus of Books, the documentary on Netflix. It was the open night, opening night movie last year at Outfest, and I didn't see it then, so I'm glad I got to catch it. It was really interesting, especially um, being that I know that store and went, went to that store, both stores in L.A., uh, a fair amount. And it was just the characters and the people that, that run it, the couple, are, are really interesting, and the dynamic with the family. But it was also just like every time they'd go back there, it would be a little more barren and, and the business, just people aren't buying those things. The internet just killed so many businesses and this was sort of the last gasp of one of them. Um, and I found that kind of poignant, uh, but definitely worth watching. And um, it feels like a lot of people are talking about it and watching it. It's on Netflix. Um, so that's about it. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye!